All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And today we're going to talk about the movie Dumb and Dumber. But before we get too much further. I want to ask you, audience, do you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? My co-host, Robert. Yeah. Oh, God. You got me. You got me. All right. Listen up, you little freedom weasels. In the uh, spirit of this special episode where we are talking about dumb stuff, I want to welcome and thank all my fellow breatharians and those that are interested in the movement, who's, those that are tempted by the lifestyle. We are the enlightened ones that recognize food for the scam that it is. We know that all a human being needs is the cosmic dew from the universal energy font. Not the bilge that supermarkets peddle who just want to get you hooked on their smack. So you have to keep going back week after week. Not anymore. I'm a free man, unencumbered from caloric want. So welcome, and thank you all for giving up food and joining me in my emancipation. Don't listen to the food propagandists and back alley calorie peddlers whose only interest is to protect their disgusting jobs. These pastrami pushers won't be happy until the whole world is eating food. So stop eating and save money. You know, you'll have more money to spend on all the drugs you'll need to help you forget your bone-rattling hunger. And uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, about a week ago, there was a story that came out. There's a couple who uh, exist solely on breathing and the life force of the universe. That, I thought, was appropriate for this episode. And the second thing I want to talk about is uh, a thing I stumbled across today. Um... The book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand uh, is fairly well-known in the uh, freedom circles. And I came across this conspiracy theory about it, and this is totally new to me. It's, it's kind of kind of dumb, but that's why I'm talking about it. It's a guy named John Todd who was this sort of Satanist slash Wiccan slash Christian slash conspiracy theorist slash crazy person slash rapist. And he came out and he said that – so you know it's a trusted source. He came out and said that Atlas Shrugged is an Illuminati book. It was ordered, written, and produced by Philip Rothschild, the leader of the Illuminati. And she was, at the time, one of Philip Rothschild's mistresses. And it was written as a novel, but it's actually a code book. And what's in the book is a step-by-step plan to take over the world by taking over the United States. And uh, it's funny, he has some complaints about the book and saying that some of the passages might belong in Hustler. And I don't remember any of that kind of thing. Maybe there's some slight love scenes very gentle love scenes in the book, but whatever. But he says that they're in there to keep Christians from reading the book. Uh, so if you do run across that, you just kind of skip ahead. He says that when you study Alice Shrugged, you'll find that you are reading the front pages of the paper today. The oil shortage that doesn't exist. They state that they destroy their own oil wells, that they hide their own oil so nobody can have it. They state how they destroy the coal mines and shut the coal mines down. They shut the electricity down. They state how they cripple the country and no food is grown. It states how they pit and derail trains so that no trains go. It states how they sink and pirate thousands of ships every year. And I, this, it struck me as the rantings of a crazy person. Because if you've read the book, like I have, 
it actually details how people are frustrated with all these idiotic regulations and all the looting being done by government. And so these business owners and these business leaders simply withdraw. Francisco does destroy his own like gold mine in like Venezuela or I forget where it is down in South America. Chile, copper mine. Okay, there you go. Okay, there you go. But it's it's just upon just before like the government is going to seize it. It's going to steal it all from it. So yeah, it, it's just it's just a real the idea that you would that the the protagonists in the story were planning to like take over the world by leaving and going to Gulf Gulch. I don't. It just it doesn't. What are they? What is he even talking about? You're a captain of industry, and you're producing all these goods. And he says, like, at one point, they derail trains so that tra- no trains go. If anything, Dagny Taggart is fighting heroically to maintain the train schedules and to serve the customers in the face of all these idiotic laws and regulations. So I, I don't know if this is just a fundamental misunderstanding of the book or if this is just a crazy person talking and hoping that you've actually never read the book. So that was the thing that I thought was dumb in the spirit of Dumb and Dumber. Two things, and that's all I got. Uh, okay. That was awkward. <laughs> Good. This is what I do. So, this is the Actual Anarchy Podcast, actuallyanarchy.com, talking about Dumb and Dumber and food rant and, uh... And not eating food anymore rant, Daniel. Right. So, Robert won't be a co-host for much longer. I think you can survive about 40 to 50 days with no food. Um, a pack of lies. Are you, count- are, you- for big calorie. are you counting water in this? Because then it's much quicker. So, perhaps... We might move on to our guest, Scott Albright, who writes for the site, actualanarchy.com. He writes on harmonic, what is it, economic harmonies, that's right. He's our, he's our Bastiat guy. And if Robert dies of starvation or lack of Not gonna happen. hydration, then uh, Scott Albright can be our new co-host. So, Scott, why you, Scott, tell us about yourself. How did you uh, come to find us? Uh, How did you get into the Fruit Liberty Movement? And what kinds of things are you working on these days? Well, I want to thank both of you all, Dan and Robert, for having me on as a guest. I'm glad to be part of this and much appreciated. And I am um, a hardware service tech by day and an Austrian economist by night. I got into the delivery movement about two and a half years ago after reading Frederick Bastiat's The Law. That is a book that will reshape the way you think about political economy and the nature of the state forever going forward. So it's saying that the rest is history. After that, I um, joined the Tom Woods Elite Facebook group in January. That's how I met Dan and also found out about Actually, Anarchy, as I've started to write a little bit for you guys, as well as Front Range Voluntarist. And I do plan to have some upcoming reviews on both Economic Harmonies, those chapter reviews, and for Man, Economy, and State, both books. So there'll be about 37 reviews for the next year. I plan to do about two a month for Economic Harmonies, one for Man, Economy, and State. So um, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us. We do uh, seem to have good luck with the Tom Woods group finding like-minded people. It might be boring for our audience a little bit because we just find people who agree with us all the time. But I got to point out that we're sort of in a bubble when we're in that group, right? Like for the most part, we all are traveling the same direction within the group, but we have to realize that we are a very significant minority when it comes to the day-to-day people you interact with in your in your real life. And so even though we bring on people on our show that tend to agree with us for the most part, I think that uh, we're still in the minority for most people who might run into the show because our focus here is to entertain because we're talking about movies, uh, but educate a little bit because we're throwing in uh, morality and Austrian economic, but in an effort to educate and perhaps emancipate people from their status mindset. So that's kind of the, the basic behind why we do what we do here. And it's one of the things that I've been kind of thinking on as we've grown uh, our show 
on our end, people have come to us to interview us, and I've been always caught off guard with the questions that come to us. So I'm, I've been trying to think ahead and visualize, all right, what kind of questions might we encounter? So I'm going to come up with better answers. Yeah, be on your toes for sure. Yeah, and that's if, if, if you guys are listeners of our show, you definitely know that we are not on our toes. We're just like shooting the shit, just talking about whatever, sort of loosely basing it on a movie like tonight where we base it on the movie Dumb and Dumber. And this was a suggestion by you, Scott. So why don't we start off with why did you suggest this movie? And then we'll start talking about it. Uh, we'll do the Google description, which is usually horribly wrong. And we'll start taking this down scene by scene. I thought this would be a good movie because it shows you the length that people will go to to um, satisfy their most desired ends. And even if that involves driving you know, 2,000 miles across the country, uh, sometimes you know, people will make it happen. And uh, even when you're as dim-witted as Blue Christmas and Harry Dunn, when there's the will, there is a way. There are many means and ends that we can talk about for the movie, and I knew that I can just hire Rothbardian principles to it well. Yeah, that works for me. So uh, before we get too much further into this, I just want to mention that uh, actualanarchy.com is our website. We've got all sorts of Amazon links and Tom Woods Liberty Classroom links and readitfor.me links. So please do check those out if you want to support the site. We also have Patreon at patreon.com slash readrothbard. And what that will get you is a visual, audio-visual action of the behind the scenes of the show and the show itself. We also have another couple of things in the works that will be offered to people within the, the Patreon community. So if you want to support what we do, do check us out there. And in the meantime, let's start talking about this movie. I have the Google description pulled up about Dumb and Dumber, a 1994 comedy, one hour and 53 minutes, PG-13. And it reads as imbecilic best friends, Lloyd Christmas, played by Jim Carrey, and Harry Dunn, Jeff Daniels, stumble across a suitcase full of money left behind in Harry's car by Mary Swanson, Lauren Holly. Already wrong. Uh, who was on her way? Yeah. Our, who was on her way to the airport? The pair decide to go to Aspen, Colorado, to return the money, unaware that it is connected to a kidnapping. As Harry and Lloyd, who have fallen in love with Mary, are pursued across the country by hired killers and police, they find both their friendship and their brains tested. So this is a, a sort of laughably wrong Google description. 66% run tomatoes, but 91% of Google users recommend this movie. Scott, did you know if you watched the unrated version or the PG-13 version? I watched the original PG-13. Okay. So I, have, I haven't seen the unrated yet. Because I just watched the unrated last night, and from the Google description, it says that Mary left the briefcase in Lloyd's limousine. Is that what happens in the uh, PG-13 version? Uh, no, she's in the middle of the... Um, Concourse area. Yeah, okay. The, uh, yeah, same. Term. Okay, we got the same scene. All right, sounds good. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. She's yeah. supposed to leave the drop of the suitcase in the airport, and Lloyd sees it and thinks that she just forgot it, and he goes to grab it. Yeah, he's obviously, um, you know, really head over heels for for Mary. You know, love at first sight, and it's very high on his value scale to you know have a date with her, maybe a, a one night stand, so to speak. But um, he sees this as a big opportunity to return to her, even though he didn't make it to the plane in time fell out of the shoot, got fired, and is in a situation now where he's willing to, you know, leave Rhode Island with, with Harry and also um, not even w- want to work. You know, you, you see that when they're looking for jobs, they say, you know, there's not a single job unless you want to work 40 hours a week. Well, they would rather not work, not pay the gas man, and just sell a dead parakeet, marbles, and baseball cards to a blind kid in a fraudulent manner and then take the suitcase across the country 2,000 miles as an excuse for Harry to, um, I'm sorry, Lloyd to have his highest uh, valued in satisfied of you know, meeting and having a date with Mary Swanson. So you have a lot of, of choices here. I just, that's my starting point. I, I did notice at the beginning of the movie um, where the young lady was at 
that Lloyd asked for directions, it was on a corner of Hope Street, and I was thinking if that were only Hop Street. The combination of that and the one from Austria, you know, that's a you can't ask for a better Kickstarter for an Austrian critique of a movie. Definitely. Who knows that, that she happened to be Austrian, and uh, of course he mistook her as Australian. <laughs> <laughs> right. He, he just can't get it right. Very uh, limited faculties, which he plays well. Um, but yeah, a couple things I noticed in the movie, how he, he says he's going to save up for a worm store. I got worms. So there's an indication, verbal indication, that he's lowering his time preferences, maybe saving some of his money up for a store he wants to open. He's at least saving up the worms. But then that, that all goes to hell after trying to get a suitcase to Mary and getting fired, wrecking into the vehicle, being so caught in a gawking gaze at her was, as he loses, or loses concentration where he's driving. So um, it's a crazy turn of events, but let me just look at my notes here. There's a couple things I wanted to add. Harry didn't know that Aspen is in the U.S. that when he says, I don't know, Lloyd, the French are assholes. So the ignorance of these, these two together is something you can laugh at more and more each time you watch the movie. They are very fraudulent, uh, thieving, killing NAP violators. Very dim-witted, too. Say that was my big takeaway from this movie was how much of a menace Lloyd was. Uh, in the very first scene when he's driving Mary to the airport, he turns completely around starts talking to her, not paying attention to what he's doing, when his one job is to get her to the airport safely. And he flies through a traffic light, and he causes an accident. And people certainly died. There's a giant explosion in the background that goes completely unnoticed by either character. And then later on at the airport, he crashes his car again because he's not paying attention. And then he's fired. And it makes me wonder how he even got the job in the first place, because he's clearly a terrible, terrible employee. And so is Harry. Harry is driving the dogs around. He's driving them to like a dog show and he's feeding them. And then he's just driving like a maniac and he gets them there late and covered in like paint or whatever. Uh, he's clearly also just a terrible, terrible employee. So I, it seems to me that they're not, I mean, they're not happy with where they're at in their life and they really have nothing. They live in some dingy apartment in some dingy apartment building with no jobs, no prospects. They don't want to work 40 hours a week and they spend their money like just ridiculously. They've got like no money left. And so Lloyd goes out to buy a bunch of beer and stupid things like a giant foam hat or whatever. And then he, he insults some old lady. And so she robs him of even the st stupid things that he bought. Uh, he's, he's a monster in this movie. He's an absolute monster. He doesn't mean to be. He's not intentional. So maybe you're calling these accidents and not necessarily NMP violations, but he is, he's causing all kinds of mayhem and damage and, I, I don't think anybody would want to associate with him. I wouldn't. Yeah, he's certainly a dangerous, dangerous individual. And I, I found it kind of hilarious how he uh, did demonstrate his time preference hindrance in it was like their last $40 or whatever. And they went out and bought just total garbage. And then he wanted to get the uh, Rhode Island slut. And he, he left his wallet inside of the machine to get it. And then he asked that old lady to watch his stuff for him. And she was totally willing to do it. And I, and I think at that point, she would have not taken his stuff. But then he kept speaking to her and was like, you know, old people, even though they're dangerous behind the wheel and not, not useful in any other capacity, still have some, some use value. So thank you for watching my stuff. And then, of course, because he pissed her off, his stuff is gone. And, and then when right. he says, I, I didn't even, I got robbed by a sweet old lady on a motorized cart and didn't even see it coming. It's like, that just you know shows how dense he is again when he's not realizing what he's saying to these old people, you know, this old lady would maybe come across as offensive. And another way I recognize time preference is how, you know, when Harry says that, um, you know, what really chaps my ass is that I spend my life savings turning my van to a dog. Uh, Lloyd responds by saying, um, chicks dig it, it's shagging wagon. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that's probably not going to be a good that the shagging wagon will not be something that can exchange, you know, with high value. There's no reason to speculate that it's going to have a 
higher price in the future. So it's in direct use, they still value it pretty highly, at least from the, from the sound of things and the look of it. You know, these people seem to have a uh, disconnect between what they say versus what they do, because they want to sound like they're entrepreneurial, like they're saving and investing and, and trying to scratch their way above subsistence in the world. But then their actions belie that like entirely. Like they say that they're saving money to open this pet store. I got worms, which is basically a worm farm. But then they're down to like $40. They can't pay their gas bill. They spend all their money making their, their car or their van into a dog. Then they, you know, buy a um, paddle ball and a, a big hat and some Coors Light and a uh, new Rhode Island slut. So it's, it's one of those things where they, they'll say they desire something versus what they actually do. So it's a great example of how when asked, say, in a questionnaire or a study, people will give a different answer than what uh, they will actually do, which is the study of human action. You know, you don't look at what they answer on a survey. You look at what they actually put their money toward. And that is a big difference in how uh, the Austrians view ec- economics versus much of the mainstream and, and uh, the idea of scientific study and experimentation. Right. And in addition to this, they also say how they Lloyd. I think when the, the Harry asks what the uh, the briefcase is when Lloyd comes back from his job and whatnot, and Larry and Lloyd says, "Well, I'd have to be a low life to go rooting around in someone else's private property." Uh, then until later on when they find out that it's oh by the way it's filled with cash. At which point then all of a sudden that private property is. You know, they put in IOUs, but do they ever actually have any intention of paying that back? Those two guys with the means that they have, you know, all of a sudden somebody else's private property is fair game. So, yeah, they, they talk a good game, but uh, they actually don't respect other people's private property. They, um, that's clearly demonstrated, and, and as Dan pointed out, that only through action can we reveal where um, our certain ends are on the value scale, or at least that we have ends. And basically, you know, on the, on the wor- I got worms, that was, as far as we can tell, all talk outside of maybe the worms that he was saving, but... Um, to say you're going to, you know, lower your time versus open up a store and it hasn't been demonstrated through action yet. We can always say that Lloyd values a taxi, tri- taxi cab driving job, you know, higher at the moment. And, um, also too, when, once they got to the restaurant where Harry spilled the salt and he tossed the salt over his shoulder hitting sea bass, it's a negligent act of, um, what ultimately amounts to a violation of private property when they, for- they put the, their tab on sea bass and added up to some extra goodies. So they're thieves again. Mm-hmm. And then Fleet Town, and it's just interesting to see that what these guys would do to, you know, deflect their own responsibility and not even man up to their own thoughts. So, but yet, yeah, underneath it all, we can still learn about praxeology. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and and this is something that Robert has brought up in the past: is that everyone likes to think of themselves as a hero in their own story, right? Like you're Scott, you are the star of the Scott Show, and you're always going to view yourself as the good guy, the hero. And I'm going to view Daniel as the, the good guy, the hero of my show, and Robert, likewise. I mean, for the most part. I mean, obviously, we sometimes do things that maybe we uh, don't even think are, are good things, but we still desire to do them, and we do. But the point is that they're not only deluding themselves, but they're actually kind of terrible people, right? Like, as dim-witted as they are, they actually do pull off some things that are rather rather evil, evil-minded, and fraudulent. And they, they kind of get away with it. And I think it's funny. They were laughing about it the whole time as they were robbing... The, the restaurant or Seabass or whoever ended up paying that tab, how, how genius Lloyd was for thinking that up and how wonderful it was that they're getting away with it and all that. I mean, it's a comedy, but we're, we're evaluating as if, you know, they're real people. So that's what we do. Yeah. yeah. And I do want to bring us back just a little bit, the scene where the gangsters are there trying to get the money and then they rip the bird, the head off the bird. And then yep. they end up selling the bird to the uh, blind kid, like Scott mentioned. And I, I just have a quick little story about that. So our neighbor across the street had some chickens and this past winter was kind of rough, and we had probably two or three feet of snow at a given time. 
and I was tasked with helping with the chickens while the people who uh, owned the chickens were out of town. And so I would trudge out there and try to give them water, but the water was all frozen, try to give them food, et cetera. Every couple of days, trudge out there, try to help them survive. Well, the people got back from their trip and several of the chickens ended up dying from freezing to death. And he had told his, um, his wife that they all died. But just 15 minutes prior to him going out there, I had seen three or four of the chickens still alive. And I was like, hey, you know, maybe we should bring them over to somewhere else where they can be warm or whatever. But what ended up happening was, like in Dumb and Dumber, their heads fell off because it was so cold, apparently. And what the guy had done is he had gone out there and been like, all right, I had a dozen chickens, now I have four. So rather than deal with the four remaining, I'm just going to rip their heads off and then go tell my wife they died from the cold. Big bummer story. (laughs) But our pet's heads are falling off, and that is what happens in the movie. So that's why I wanted to bring that one up. Yeah, so Daniel, did you think that that scene, or that, that action by Lloyd, of selling the dead bird to the kid? I mean, clearly, I, I would imagine at some point, we don't actually get to see the transaction, but I imagine at some point Lloyd told them that it was still alive, or the assumption was that it was still alive. I mean, generally the idea is that, you know, buyer beware, caveat emptor. But you imagine that you're dealing with a blind kid, and he's like, oh, yeah, you'd buy my, my live bird, PD. I mean, we don't get to actually see it. But later on, we get an interview with the kid, and the kid's, like, terrified, and he thought he was, the bird was just sleeping or quiet or something like that. And, yeah, you know. my, my response to that is that the kid, the blind kid, is the third part of the Dumber and Dumber crew. Because if you're going to buy a dead bird from someone and think it's a live bird and be tricked by this, even if you're blind, you're especially dumb. To not realize True. it's not moving at all, it's cold, it's stiff, it's not making any noise, clearly not asleep. I mean, of right, course, it's a movie. The money you know. on Dead Parrot Sketch. Right, yeah, exactly. An- another way to look at it was Billy and Forcey, I think was his name in the movie. He was Crusoe's Friday, so to speak, in a way, and that they had nothing left for them, no jobs, and they could at least trade some you know, baseball cards and marbles and a dead bird to Billy and Forcey. So he did come in handy for them, like you said, he is the dumberer, not to be discriminatory to a blind man. Further in the movie, when they picked up Mr. Mentolino, the, the mobster, who's out to, you know, to get the briefcase. Lloyd clearly values his, um, his singing ability, at least in their direct use. It's not like they're, he's a good enough singer to exchange the songs for money or to speculate that they will further be, you know, of higher value, but he loves the Mockingbird song and Harry joins with him and that really agitates and grinds the gears of Mr. Mentolino. So it's, it's funny to see. Technically, it's their private property, so they can do with the front. And I guess Mr. Mentolino implicitly knew that, but, uh, being so, having such a short fuse and being so easily, you know, irritated that he didn't pick the most ideal route, for sure. Well, there is a point where he's pulling for his weapon to probably kill the boys uh, until they pick up the uh, hitchhiking family, like the, the, I guess they're Mexican or, or whatever, who join in in the sing-along. That's right. Yep. My, I remember that. And, I, and that's one of, that made me think a little bit about um, mobility through markets and having a capital structure and how maybe these people were migrants in need of a better opportunity and they gave them a ride. So it's kind of like going from being on foot to being a passenger. And that made me think about, you know, economic growth and what man has accomplished since, say, the horse and buggy to the automobile. So that's just one way of looking at it from a capitalistic standpoint. That's a good point, yeah. So, Robert, let's pick a scene here and let's dissect it. So we, we've sort of talked about the dead bird and now mental. Do they end up at a, at a restaurant after this? Is that where we're at? Before that, there's the cop pulling over for speeding which is a ridiculous scene. If you want to talk about that, just real quick. Sure, why not? Go for it. So Lloyd, for some reason, has to all of a sudden pee like a racehorse, and he's got all these open containers, like open beer bottles. And so he's filling them up, and then they get pulled over for speeding. And the cop walks up to him, and he says, you know, you know, there's an open container law. And then for some reason, only in a comedy, 
would this ever happen? He's like, give me one of those. And then he takes a drink. And then he wouldn't just immediately pull them out. And once he realizes that it's pee, he wouldn't just, I mean, in the real world, of course, he would never drink it in the first place in the real world. But then he wouldn't, like, order them out of the car and, like, arrest them. And uh, you know what I mean. But instead, he just, like, lets them go. Yep. So, yep. I don't know. That was just, like, a, a silly, like, scene that was seen to be, I don't know, what kind of thing that you'd think up when you're in high school. Think it'd be funny. I don't know. Well, one, I was thinking about that scene because one thing they made me think about was they were just coming off of um, Jip and Seabass and putting a tab on his. And I think at that point, Harry, as the driver, you know, will, you know, willingly dropping Lloyd across the country, and he, he was he's part of it. It's his property. He values the escape and safety of getting away from Seabass more than pulling over and allowing um, Lloyd a convenient, you know, lizard draining, so to speak. Right. So that's what it made me think right. of. Yeah, definitely. They were on the run from Seabass at that point because Lloyd had divulged to Harry that uh, the trick that he had pulled on Seabass was from a movie. And he's like, oh, yeah, did Harry Harry says, did they get away with it? He's like, oh, no, uh, they got they got caught like a half a mile later and, and got their throats slit. Right. So he has no he has no incentive to uh, stop at any point in the near future for Lloyd to, to take a pee. Once they were in the restaurant with Mr. Mentalino, they um, pulled another fraudulent move by stuffing the pepper into his burger as he went out to take the phone call. And um, after he asked them, you know, how you, or what are you boys doing? He said, or, how's the burger? And he said, why don't you eat up and we'll tell you. It brought it, it flared his ulcers and he asked for his pills and he, he obviously needed them. And they you know, mistakenly gave him the, the rat poisoning that was going to be intended to kill them. But there again, negligently and in a very doofus manner, they killed him. So on top of multiple violations of theft and fraud, they've become negligent murderers now. Yeah, I don't really give, I kind of give him a pass for the, the feeding them the rat poison. Like, he asked for his pills, and they grabbed a bottle of pills. What I don't give him a pass for is, just a, you know, a, a few seconds earlier, they had eaten these, these uh, peppers themselves, and they're like blown away by how hot they are. And then they put it in his burger, as, and they, they explained it away. It's like, well, this is just a goof, a prank. It's not a big deal. It's absolutely a big deal. It's absolutely an assault. It's absolutely an NAP violation. Regardless of whether you know the guy has ulcers or not, I mean, it's a kind of juvenile thing that like a child would do and not think it's a big deal. But as an adult, I think you have to realize that he could have ulcers or he could be allergic to this thing or this is a thing that he doesn't want. Why do I have any right to feed it to him? Ah, so I hate to quibble with you, sir. Let's do it. All right. So I I agree it is juvenile, but I don't think it's... uh... An assault per se. I don't think it's vindictive. I think the intention is is not to to cause significant harm. It's just to prank somebody. And yes, it is childlike. And certainly the person who's a victim of this could be very upset by it. And I would totally expect that. I would be upset by this as well. In fact, I remember you and I being at a, a dinner in I think it was Bellevue. We were at some Chinese restaurant, and you had these uh, devil peppers that made you not able to breathe, and we had to get milk or something. This is probably like 15 oh, it was the worst. Years. Yeah, yeah I still remember that day. I remember that day vividly still. That is absolutely terrible. I love right. this one. And your life had gone like before your eyes in that moment, I'm sure. But my point is that these guys were not doing this in a uh, an intent to do harm kind of way. And their understanding of him potentially having an ulcer, I think that that's not totally legitimate. I mean, that's a slippery slope argument, right? Like everyone, anyone could have any condition. At what point, you know, does somebody have light sensitivity to where you can't fly do a flashlight on them. You know, like somebody might be harmed by something, but there's a certain reasonable expectation of things that are within bounds that are not known to be harmful. Uh, sort of like... Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Not known to be harmful. They had just eaten these peppers and they experienced firsthand how harmful they were. 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It burned their mouth. Yeah, how unpleasant they, and how terrible they, it was for them. Yes, yes. Unpleasant enough, like like having a wedgie or uh, getting a swirly or something along okay, those Okay, okay. You clearly have not eaten one of these things, so don't even compare it to a wedgie or a swirly, please. All right, so 15, 20 years ago when this happened to you, I had the same peppers and, and I uh, avoided them after you had your situation. I learned from your mistake. But the point is they served them to people. Did, did you consider that a violation? I mean, they weren't doing it to be funny, but they still gave it to you. I had yeah. ordered that food. Yeah, you'd ordered it. Buyer beware, right? Yeah, but he had not ordered it in the movie. Right, yeah, yeah. But they were pranking him. I, I kind of give the, the prank a pass a little bit. I mean, they weren't intending to harm him. Well, okay. Okay, beyond, so if I go and punch like you in the dick burning and call it a prank, it's not an NAP violation? I'm trying to look at this. I'm, trying, I'm entertaining this thought from a phrasing, phrasing. If, if I go up to you and punch you in the dick and call it a prank, a goof, then I clearly haven't assaulted you, right? Because there was no intent to, as you put it, cause what? Not kill you or something like that? I think to a point, yeah, it is a prank. Uh, people do that all the time. Generally, young young. I'm men. just trying to learn where my boundaries are with you. So the next time I see you, I can go ahead and kick you in the balls. And it's perfectly fine, as long as I say it's a joke. Well, I'm, I may kick you back harder, so we'll see. Well, then that wouldn't be a joke. You'd be getting some sort of revenge for a prank. That's not fair. You'd be a violation of property rights. Yeah, right. you'd be violating my property rights. Right, any prank is going to violate somebody in some way, right? Yeah, which is why it's an NAP violation. Or does it vary with sensitivity? Yeah, you snowflake. So I can go ahead and feed you a ghost pepper, and it's not an NAP violation. When you didn't expect to eat that ghost pepper. Now, I might still be angry with you, but I don't think it constitutes that you're trying to kill me. Uh, that, that's not the point. Not Every NAP violation isn't murder or not murder. It's whether it's an aggression or not. Right, and, and I'm not disagreeing that it's an aggression, but you conflated it with, well, he has this ulcer no, that I said it was means NAP that violation. he's, he's going to have uh, this reaction, and they should have expected as adults that he could potentially have an ulcer, and thus they should not do this because it might harm him more than it would harm a normal person. That has nothing to do with harming one person over another person. It's, it's causing harm at all. Right, but these are your words. You said that, that they should expect that he might have a condition such as an ulcer. No, no, no. Play back the tape. I didn't say oh. that they should expect it. I said that it's possible that. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is whether or not you're causing harm. They, I don't think they were mindful enough to notice him as he was taken, taken on the drive. But I still think it's fraudulent what they did. But um, I don't... I don't well, want to fraud make NAP violation. Yeah, but now one thing you can add, you can add into this whole conversation of this whole scene was consequentially was it justifiable insofar as he was going to kill them anyway with the rat poisoning and therefore that's, it, <laughs> yeah, that's right, buddy. That's the best part of the question. That's the best they, part of the whole thing. It was like um, an indirect self defense, you know, self defense ahead of time, so to speak. Right, some sort of right, like a preemptive yeah, getting him before they could get him. Whether they to, realize totally it or not. incidental, totally incidental. I don't, I don't think that we can look at their actions as self-defense as such, because they did not intend it to be be that. Correct. But it's still a fun little thing to think about. Like, he was yeah, going he, to kill. He was going to kill. He was, about to poison. he was just about to. If they yeah. hadn't have put the pepper in his hamburger, he was going to poison them. Yes. In the Shirley Temples. Right. <laughs> so another example where their idiocy saved their lives, I guess. Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair statement. Honestly, the thing that bothers me more the two instances that bother me more on a fraudulent level is them selling the, the blind kid, the dead bird, and the stealing from CPAP. Because those were mindful, premeditated, like, we're going to screw somebody over situations versus we're going to do this prank that's ha-ha funny. Like, we had these peppers. They were really hot. It hurts. Let's do it to this guy. Ha-ha-ha. Selling a dead bird to somebody or making somebody else pay for your meal is clearly intended to be deceitful. Right. Where do you put the um, the IOU situation? Oh, I, I consider that a central banking mainstay. They are the uh, they're right in line with the mainstream, man. On that no, one. I, exactly. As soon as that scene came up, I was like, well, yeah, that's the Federal Reserve and central banking. You know, just 
personified. Those right, posts do you were put it at the top of the fraud, or do you put it somewhere in between because they didn't intend, they had a different intent? Well, I think the distinction we made earlier where they talk a big game, but they don't follow it through with their actions. Like you were saying, they said they were good for the money, they were going to pay every cent back. And I think that maybe they even believed it themselves, but then they go and get the presidential suite at the hotel and the Lamborghini yeah. and, and the crazy outfits and the skis and all that stuff. Yeah, what 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 in their past has led them to believe that they would ever be able to pay that back? Right, but this is, a, this is a perfect example of uh, it's easy to be generous with other people's money. You know, they were kidding right. everybody like hundreds of dollars, like just for carrying right. that or just standing near them. And I think Rothbard has a quote of this where, yeah, he says it's easy to be uh, conspicuous with, with other people's money, but when it's your money, uh, you're, you're a lot cheaper with it or more miserly. I'm, I'm totally butchering the quote here. That difference we talked about earlier where they believe, they, they think they're going to treat it one way, but then because the temptation to spend that money, is it's right there. You know, like, why not? It's just kind of what happens. And that's a perfect example of, like, how governments aren't restrained by anything any longer. Like, they can either tax people, they can inflate, which is another method of taxation, or uh, what's the other uh, means they can, they can borrow, which is also another means of taxation because they're just promising future stolen money or future inflated money in repayment back to some crony banker. Right. I think two parts of the movie reminded me of what you just described so eloquently, Dan. Not just with central banking, but also the distortions of uh, labor and capital allocations in the market that come from central banking and state intervention through public works projects, for example. Um, the part where Lloyd takes over dropping and, you know, he goes a sixth of the way across the country in the wrong direction. And you have that and the IOUs from the suitcase or the briefcase that they discovered was full of the ransom money. So you have obviously no incentive to be frugal with that money that is not even yours that you found and now are in possession of. The whole concept of IOUs being as good as money makes you think about the nature of the dollars being devalued 97% in the last 100 years with a combination of the Fed and the loose treasuries. And then how state planning ultimately um, distorts where capital and labor allocated away from what consumers demand. So that, you know, going a sixth of the way across the country the wrong way just reminds me so much of state intervention and totalitarian planning anywhere along the line of scope. But those two points in the movie brought home that more than any other. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, chronologically in the movie, they traveled six, a sixth of the way the wrong way before they discovered that they had a suitcase full of money. And this is the point you brought up in the pre-show, where this is where Harry says, fed up. We don't have enough money to get to Aspen. We don't have enough money to get home. We don't have enough money to eat, sleep, whatever. And I'm, he says, I'm walking home. And you had, you had some notes here, and maybe you can just pick up from, from this point where their value scales changed as a result of having very little money. And they do an exchange to solve this problem. Yes. Lloyd goes into the local town and trades these sheepdogs straight up for a moped that gets 70 miles to the gallon. But considering their options and their circumstances, I think that, I think the high gas mileage was pretty high on their value scale, ordinarily, and that that was basically their only hope of you know, getting anywhere. Right, because Harry had a point. Like they, Because they went the wrong way and because they didn't realize that they had this suitcase full of money, they couldn't make it all the way to Aspen in the shagging wagon. By making this exchange, Lloyd actually made a very beneficial trade. In the ex-ante sense, every trade is, is mutually beneficial. Like you expect to gain more from what you're giving up uh, with what you're gaining from what you're receiving. That's totally butchered. But like you only make the exchange because you expect to be better off. Now, that may not be the case, but for the most part, it generally is. And it's the reason you go into the exchange to begin with. And so Lloyd makes this exchange to get the moped and probably some additional money or you know, at least enough to get enough gas to get to Aspen. And it was another interesting point. As they're driving up to Aspen, they freeze. You know, they, they arrive in town like frozen. And it's, it's 
choice that they made that they would prefer to arrive there frozen in discomfort versus not make it there in a relatively comfortable van and come up with some other way to come up with the fuel to get it all the way to Aspen. So they're making choices, they're making decisions, and they're foregoing certain conveniences or certain comforts to be able to accomplish their goal. In many ways, I think they're very entrepreneurial in this movie, or they, they at least talk a big game, like we've said. They, they have an intention to be entrepreneurial, and some of the actions they do are actually entrepreneurial in some way, because uh, when they are down to the last dollar, but then, of course, they discover they have all this money, and there's not a whole lot stopping them from spending it. Gains not only marginal utility, but gains from trade and equalizing utility is when they were over that they had that fire going in that uh, trash barrel and Lloyd revealed to Harry that he had an extra pair of gloves. And Harry said, extra gloves? You've had this, this extra pair of gloves this whole time. He says, yeah. And well, now that second pair of gloves didn't give Lloyd the same level of utility as the first, but there was so much lost utility from Harry not having any gloves at all that utilities could have been maximized if Lloyd would have just shared the gloves, you would think. But all of that lost utility that is now manifesting itself with cold, frigid hands makes Harry want to just, you know, beat the shit out of Lloyd. Yeah, no, I want to draw a distinction here because there really is no way to, to compare utilities across subjective value, right? Like two different people, you can't like draw it down to a certain quantifiable number. You can't say that Lloyd having two pairs of gloves was like five utils more valuable than Harry not having gloves or something along those lines. But there is a general tendency to say that uh, Lloyd had more than he probably needed, and he could have been a little bit more uh, compassionate in offering his gloves up to Harry. Though, because it was his private property, like with our kids, we we teach them, like, what's yours is yours, and you can choose to share it if you wish, but you don't have to, and we're never going to force you to. But we will tell you that there are consequences to whatever actions you choose, and if you are very stingy with your things, then your friends and, and people may not enjoy hanging out with you as much. So it's up to you. You can decide what's more important to you, playing with your things exclusively or allowing your friends to play with them and having friends to play with. I know based on, that's a, I, like, I, I agree with you. And the way I phrase it, man, it sound like I was making an interpersonal comparison of utility, but I didn't mean for that to be the case. But because there was no knowledge of Harry, from Harry of that until, you know, hours into it, that he just really felt shammed, undoubtedly. I think he had an ex- expectation they were, that they were looking out for each other. And so he felt as if perhaps that that, that bargain that was maybe an unspoken bargain, an, an unspoken agreement, had been violated. I could kind of see that. Yeah. So, Robert, you want to chime in here and bring us, uh, bring us towards home? Let's, let's around that corner. Sure, boys. So they've arrived. There's the, the glove debacle, which, yeah, I agree with you, Daniel. I mean, Lloyd is his own private property. He doesn't have a positive obligation to share with Harry, but... They had been sharing everything up to this point, and if he had two pairs of gloves and he cared about his friend and cared about his friend's hands, then he probably probably should have shared it. Probably would have shared it. I probably would have, but you know we're talking about a couple of morons anyway. Well, there was one funny point when uh, Harry's choking Lloyd. Lloyd says, "Man, your hands are really cold." Yeah, that's <laughs> <It was> funny. <laughs> right. So um, in the in the the act of trying to murder Lloyd. The, they knock the briefcase on the ground and they discover that it's full of cash. And like we said before, they immediately go on this buying spree, intending, or at least claiming to intend to fully pay whoever the owner is. We, we assume it's Mary, but and later on they say, yeah, those are IOUs, those are just as good as money. When clearly they, they have no intention or no ability to pay them back. And you guys have already said good things on that stuff. Um, after that, though, Mary is, of course, the whole plot of the movie is that Mary was paying a ransom to a bunch of kidnappers for her husband. I don't think we've mentioned this yet. 
the family is, you know, deciding what to do. Well, Mary needs to pretend like everything's normal. So she's going skiing and she's going to benefit dinners and parties and whatnot. They find out that she's going to be at this function and kind of benefit for this owl. It's this uh, Icelandic, what did you call it? Spotted owl of some kind? Snowy owl or something? Yeah. And right. right. So they go and they do the pretty woman theme and they're getting dolled up and they buy ridiculous clothes and whatever. They buy like this Lamborghini and they show up to this gala. And it turns out to be a bunch of like environmentalists that are really worried and concerned about um, the plight of this owl. I generally have share the feelings of modern day environmentalists, sort of, in a little bit. I kind of grew up, I'm a nature lover myself, but I follow Rothbard on this one where he says, you know, if you really care so much about these animals, just buy the land that they live on and there will be no conflict. What the conflict comes is when they use government as this bludgeoning stick to force everybody else to pay for their preferences. But if they would, these rich people would just buy the land that these animals live on, uh, then they could take care of the animals themselves and they could say who, who, what that land is used for. If they want, if they don't want that land to be logged, there you go. But instead they, they, for these fundraisers or they like chain themselves to trees or petition government. And, uh, yeah, that's where all these conflicts come into play. Those are all great points. I want to make a statement about what happened at this scene when they're at the Preservation Society event. You remember when Lloyd obviously told Harry to go uh, talk up or talk him up to Mary so as to make him, you know, look good and maybe help set up a smooth game spit and to, you know, get a date with her. But then ultimately Harry, um, I guess, was suckered into going skiing when Mary's mother came and mentioned that, hey, she needs a ski buddy. And was he just kind of um, not intentionally making a host before bros, but just got caught in a situation where he thought that maybe Lloyd wasn't that interested after all because he wasn't willing to talk to her. He wanted Harry to. And then he obviously didn't find the idea of one skiing with, with Mary. Was that a um, a bad move for trust and friendship between the two? Yeah, I, I, I was really confused by that. It seemed to be more of a script thing. It didn't really make sense character-wise. It didn't seem that Harry was still upset with Lloyd over for the gloves for him to go and kind of stab his friend in the back. I mean, during the conversation when Lloyd is talking to Mary and Mary's mother, he keeps trying to bring up Lloyd, but they kind of steer him towards, you know, going on the date with Mary himself. And then he just kind of goes along with it and lies to Lloyd and says, oh, yeah, I got a date with you. I got a date for you. It's at this bar tomorrow, 10 o'clock. It's going to be great. And then he goes on the, the ski trip with Mary. It doesn't seem like, I mean, what's, what's Harry's play there? What's his long game? Is he just foregoing this friendship with Lloyd or is he like, well, Lloyd will forgive me and whatever? This seems to be a real huge dick move for, like you said, the, the friendship and the trust for no reason. I, I didn't understand it as far as, I mean, it seemed like a, a thing that needed to happen for the script. It seemed to be this weird thing that it didn't seem like Harry was super interested in her. I mean, maybe he was. He seemed to he had a good time with her later on in the date, but. Yeah, I think this specific instance, I don't know how much was, I guess, the reflection of the grudge he still had for not, for Lloyd not sharing gloves back when that, when they were real cold. But yeah, I think that he's probably maybe just as lonely deep down as Lloyd is because there, there's no one in his life that's significant other. And maybe this was an opportunistic move for him to maybe be back at Lloyd. But at the same time, it was a trap more than anything, not something he intentionally did. It just was ended up indirectly working against Lloyd. Well, but he knew, he knew how Lloyd would take it because he intentionally lied to him. And then later on, when Lloyd goes to the meet the girl at the bar and she doesn't show up and they meet up later, Harry's got all that fake indignation. Like, oh my God, I can't believe she didn't show up to that date. That's yep. ridiculous. When he knows full well what actually happened. So that was just, yeah, full of deceit on Harry's part. And it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me why Harry would, I mean, other, like maybe, yeah, he's lonely and maybe he's got a chance with her. And yeah, she is gorgeous. And 
but he knows he'd be stabbing his like best friend in the back. Yeah. It didn't seem like a it didn't seem like a a decision that he would have made. That's all. Was, was he starting to turn against his friend? Maybe so. Maybe it seemed it seemed like it was too quick for me. If he was going to do that, maybe I don't know. Maybe Lloyd would have had to screw him over a little bit more. I mean, he, he all he did really was he made an honest mistake when he drove the wrong way, right, for a couple like hundred miles or whatever, which fine. But then he like he didn't share his glove. But other than that, what did what did Lloyd do to Harry? Really, you know, to, to all of a sudden bring about this betrayal. And now when the betrayal happens and Lloyd, you know, goes all mustache twirling evil and he grabs the laxative because he's going to sabotage Harry's date with Mary. You know, regardless of how he felt betrayed, obviously, and he's going to get back at Lloyd. But I, I kind of had an issue with that. Like, you're, 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 again, you're putting something in somebody's drink and you're intentionally, you know, harming the person. Uh, did you have a problem with that or did you feel that that was more justified? Uh, that was an AP violation. Okay, good. Yeah, we're on, we're on the same page there. <laughs> I think that, that Harry was, was way in the wrong on this with the uh, whole bros before hose violation. I think that that is higher up on the scale of NAP violations than the retaliation, which is the laxative, the turbo lax that made Harry have to take a massive dump in a toilet that didn't work. Oh, so you think that the, the, you're on Lloyd's side. You thought that that was perfectly justified. You thought that the, the, the lying and the deceit from Harry was a, a worse violation. Well, don't, let's not put words in my mouth, uh, among other things. But uh, I think that the, the violation of lying to your friend in relation to a girl is probably worse than whatever the revenge happens to be. Like the revenge was kind of a more of a prank. It's sort of like the difference between the selling the dead bird or having a uh, sea bass pay for your meal versus the putting the hot pepper in, uh, in mentals, uh, burger. I, I kind of see a distinction between the two and I'm not sure like how to classify that in a scholastic or intellectual sense, but I, I feel like there's a difference between those two things. Like one is intended to do harm or intended to be, uh, fraudulent, and the other is more of a retaliation for something. So you think so, that Lloyd was getting justice then? In a way, yeah. He's, he's seeking his own justice for an obvious uh, violation by Harry. Yeah, I, I think you can say that without being a consequentialist. Okay, interesting. I'm not I'm not exactly sure how I feel all about it. It's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of moving parts, and you could play all kinds of mind games to try and justify one thing over another, but it's interesting, uh, your, your reactions on that. I don't have a whole lot other, because we've already mentioned... Uh, the IOUs. You guys got anything? I mean, I think it's funny that Harry's like a completely terrible shot at super close range. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, do you remember the one part where um, Lloyd knows he obviously was violated and lied to, and whenever uh, Harry asked him, you know, about getting stood up, remember he said that he just figured she was a raging alcoholic referring to her being at the bar at 10 a.m. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just figured she was a raging alcoholic at 10 in the morning. Right. Uh, there, there are plenty of really funny lines in the story for sure. You know, a few of them are, are ad-libbed, like the opening to this show where the most annoying sound in the world, that was ad-libbed by uh, Jim Carrey on the spot, apparently, as was the scene um, where he was stood up and then he says, uh, he looks at the newspaper on the wall and says, we landed on the moon. <laughs> hey, everybody. Good news. Yeah. Uh, we just told the ad-lib. And I, I kind of want to talk about this because in this Tom Woods group, there actually was a question regarding the uh, moon landing and whether people thought it was real or fake. And there's actually a fair amount of back and forth. And my own opinion is that uh, I don't really know. I tend to believe it happened, um, even though there was more um, computer power in my 1986 Honda Civic than uh, was in the Apollo mission. But my my opinion of it is that it's one of those things that government can point to 
that everyone believes is like this amazing accomplishment that only government can accomplish. It's sort of like uh, how World War II be- defeating Hitler and Japan is looked upon as this great and noble thing. And this amazing accomplishment sort of justifies everything government does because the general population can look and say, oh, well, they did this. So of course they can manage healthcare. Of course they can manage the economy. Uh, those are easy things compared to going to the moon or, or defeating Hitler. Yeah, it, it does build up the sentimental rhetoric for yeah. the state. And, um, the competent actors, right? Come again? When in reality, they do more to harm technological development than any other thing. Yes. Right. And, and government is, is generally a failure in, in almost every respect. And uh, failure, they fail forward, right? And not in the entrepreneurial sense where they learn from their mistakes, but no, they get paid more for their mistakes. But I, I, I have to wonder, like, okay, are they so inept that they um, couldn't actually make it to the moon or they couldn't pull off faking going to the moon? You know, like you got to pick one. Like they either went there or they didn't and they covered it up really, really well. But if they're inept at everything, then how can you believe that they actually made it or didn't make it, but were able to cover it up? Am I saying that right? Like, do you follow what I'm saying? Like, whether they made it or not, if government is so inept and terrible at everything, then how can, you they, yeah. how can you believe they made it? Or how can you believe they were able to cover up not making it? They, yeah, they um, wouldn't be wise enough to make it up or to cover, to cover it, yeah. Do you know if this was just talking about the Apollo 11 landing or whatever it was, or is this in general? Because I've heard, I've heard um, like guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson talk. And they talk about how you can, with a good enough telescope, you can actually see all the genders, all the genders and the stuff left behind on the moon. Because we've actually, you know, gone back there a couple of times, supposedly. So do you um, I would be curious to see that, actually. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, if it's if it's a case of they wanted to make good on Kennedy's promise at the beginning of the 1960s. So they do it right at the end of 1969. And, and maybe they faked that one. The Russian, right. But then they did make it there later. I don't know. Uh, those those are above my pay grade. I don't I don't really dwell on those questions so much. Uh, sometimes I wonder what Alex Jones would say. He'd probably say that uh, they never made it. They faked the whole thing, and it was an inside job. Hold on, you got to do the Alex Jones voice. We got to hear we got to hear the mouth breather. They're turning the frogs gay. <laughs> ah. Well, there was one other point I wanted to mention. How another um, lie and, and, and fraudulent uh, front that, that Lloyd put up was when he brought Mary back to the hotel to get her briefcase. He said, uh, when Lloyd Christmas drives a woman to the airport, he makes sure she gets all of her luggage. You know, that's what he lives by, his life motto. And then, oh, she opens up the briefcase to IOU. So. Yeah, and, and to turn that back to the very beginning of the film when he first gets the briefcase and they're in their crummy apartment with the worm farm and the and Petey still has a head, The um, Harry's like, well, what's in it? And Lloyd says, it's private property. I'd never look in there. And, and besides, it's locked really, really well. So he obviously tried to get into it. So he, again, he's just saying the right thing, but he's not doing the right thing. Like he's saying he respects property rights, but his actions say that he doesn't respect property rights and he was trying to violate them. So it's like sort of a, a recurring theme throughout the movie. Yeah, for sure. And you deduce through action, not through talk. His choices are clearly demonstrated by action. Right. All right. So what else do we have here? We, we've done the, the laxative thing. We've done the... Um, the bird uh, benefit. We've done the IOUs. How about the um, How about the uh, the FBI as they give Harry a uh, jacket, a bulletproof vest, but that uh, Mary and Lloyd were acceptable risks or acceptable losses in case somebody got shot or killed. That's interesting. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah. So, how did they run into um, the lady, the FBI lady? She was they, waiting for Harry down at the bottom in the, in the lobby because she has been, you know, she showed up throughout the movie multiple times. Like Lloyd berates her and is totally uninterested in her at the at the bar. Harry meets her at the gas station when he lights himself on fire. Yeah, and knocks her side mirror off. Right, and and.
any sane person would try and stay as far away from these people as possible. But then, of course, it makes sense when she's like an FBI agent and she's been tailing them the whole time. And then they use Harry as a way to give him a gun and to go up and get shot and then to shoot back. And then I guess that's the, the, the plan. But that Lloyd and Mary were acceptable losses or acceptable. What, 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 I don't remember exactly the term she said. But they got killed so well. Expendable, yeah, essentially. That's the risk we were willing to take. Remember, what if what if they shot me in the head? Right, yeah, again. When Harry says, well, what if they shot me in the head? And the lady says, that's the risk we were willing to take. It does bring up a, a, a funny line that I like in that, um, well, there's two of them in this scene, where he's saying if they're the last people on Earth, then uh, would a girl like him and a, and a, a guy like her be able to get together? <laughs> And she says, uh, maybe. And he goes, oh, you're, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, what are the odds? Like, what, is it more like one in a thousand? She's like, well, yeah, it's more like one in a million. And then later on, and then later on, he finds out that she has a husband. And he's like, husband? What was all that one in a million talk? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And my other favorite line from this uh, scene is, um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Andre? He says, all right, who do I kill first? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Lloyd says, kill him. <laughs> Like immediately, like before you even get the question out. Yeah. That shows the level of their friendship at that point. Now, I wanted to say one thing is at the end, you know, once Harry or Lloyd meets um, Bobby, the husband of Mary, you know, all of what the movie was centered around him getting to have a date, you know, with Mary and maybe marry her and start a new, start, start afresh. But the briefcase was his, his key, his venue for that. And then he finds out, you know, she's married. And that what was that, like you said, was the one in the million talk. And he has that epiphany, that thought of shooting and, and killing Bobby. But in the end, he doesn't violate the NFP in this instance. He doesn't kill him. So at least uh, in the end, he um, actually better than he has had throughout the earlier parts of the movie. All right, definitely. And also at the, at the very end, when the bikini tour bus comes along and says, you know, they need two oil boys and they say, you're in luck. There's a town about, you know, 10 miles that way. And I mean, that just shows you clearly they'd rather be walking bums. That's higher on their value scale than oil boys for bikini tour ladies. So these guys are, they're like idiocracy or idiocrats, like from what you see from the idiocracy from um, the um, dumbed down weak gene pool. As far as idiocracy, I wonder how much um, Malthus influenced that movie. Because you, you've seen it and you see some of the um, maybe influences of what Malthus formed about with overpopulation in, in the early part of the movie with what's shown with, can I give away the details of the movie? Oh, sure, go ahead. Yeah, yeah go for we'll it. Well, just how they, it's they got electrolytes. <laughs> they show in the early parts of the movie how, you know, there's just the dumbest, you know, least intelligent people are, you know, breeding like rabbits and these smartest people are just not, you know, bearing much offspring and the world's just dumbed down as a result. And that, that makes you wonder about what Malthus had predicts what Malthus had predicted and how much that influenced the plot of the movie, or at least Malthusian mindset. Yeah, well, that's a good point. So much food. Yeah, we'll definitely be bringing that one up. And I also want to bring up the uh, Harvey Danger song, Flagpole Sitta, where he says, only stupid people are breeding, because that <laughs> lines right up with uh, with this one. And people will forever associate that song with American Pie, that movie with uh, Jason Biggs being a pie fucker. Yeah. That's a new one on me, but it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. That was another one, 1990, oh, no, no, that was 99, never mind, go ahead. Yeah, 99, our, our seminal years, when we were young, dumb, and full of beep, beep movies, <laughs> playing uh, Mario Kart. <laughs> there you go. Now we're just old and dumb. And we have our own show, the Actual Anarchy Podcast, talking about Dumb and Dumber. Speaking of dumb, well, so um, does that wrap our movie? What do you think? Yeah, yeah that's I, all I got. I don't know much more. That, I've exhausted my notes, so to speak. All right. Well, that's all right, like well, a good time to end it. 
Well, good stuff. I, we've been going for probably an hour and a half, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, longer, you longer still if you are a Patreon subscriber, supporter, because we had some pre-show banter going on, and I think there's actually a lot of decent stuff in that. So if you uh, don't support us, consider doing so, and then you can get all the nitty-gritty, including a screenshot or a, a visual of my ugly mug, as well as our guest, Scott Albright, and some of the background things I've been showing on a screen share at patreon.com slash readrothbard. So please do check that out. You can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Actual Anarchy Trubster. Um, we have the Actual Anarchy private Facebook group. It's, it's, a, it's a good time. We've got the Actual Anarchy website. We've got readrothbard.com. We've got guys like Scott writing for us. It's going to be fantastic. Check it out. Learn all about what Actual Anarchy is, not, uh, not the fake shit that's perpetrated in the media, or at least shown in the media, believed to be in the general mainstream consciousness. You get the real stuff here. So check it out. Should, should we talk about The Conquest of Bread a little bit? Because that's, that's a book that is often recommended for uh, anarchists from a um, communistic uh, viewpoint. Because we just launched yeah. something related to that. We sure now. did. You, yeah. Uh, Conquestofbread.com. People go there. It's a, it's a frequently referenced book in uh, ANCOM circles as the sort of like true communism, not like the status kind of communism that like Marx kind of uh, – it's kind of entailed in Marx. Marxian theology before you get to the new socialist man and then the state just kind of withers away. But in the uh, Conquest of Bread, yeah, it, man, it's, it's, it's real bad. I, I encourage people to read it, not, not like for, you know, scholarly work, it's, but, you know, dissect it and destroy it. Hope, so hopefully people will go to this website and um, get redirected to the real real, as you put it in there, Daniel. I'll have to check the book out. It sounds pretty interesting, and I think it'd be a good way to um, just build up your defenses against the comms and incomes who are going to use their typical arguments. So it's always good to know your enemy. The beautiful thing about it is that they are such good incomes and they don't believe in, in private property that they didn't even bother to secure the domain name. And so it was available for me right for the picking. And they're referring to it all day long. Like every time you encounter an incom, they're going to say, oh, you got to read Conquest of Bread. And so when people go to the Google and put in Conquest of Bread or even The Conquest of Bread, guess what? They're going to find us, and they're going to find uh, a bunch of refutations. Our, our goal, our plan, is to do a chapter-by-chapter um, -chapter analysis and refutation of everything in the book, and we've got a team of people working on it. Um, Scott, you can certainly be a part of that. We're going to do short articles about each and potentially even um, short podcast episodes or videos related to it where we basically analyze what is presented in each of those chapters and refute it, tell, tell the listeners why it's wrong, and also offer alternatives. We're going to have links to the actualanarchy.com site, uh, Liberty Classroom by Tom Woods, which, um, Scott, as you know, is a super excellent resource about free market economics and Austrian economics, and basically set a bunch of people straight. We're going to get a whole bunch of organic traffic referrals, if you will, from the AMCOM community, sending them to the AMCAP community. It's a beautiful, beautiful situation. We'll be coming home. <laughs> That's right, to actual anarchy. To actual anarchy. All right, so uh, Scott, why don't you tell our listeners, uh, remind them about what you're working on, and if uh, there's a way to see your work or get a hold of you in any in any capacity, uh, we'll give you the floor for a few minutes here, and then we will um, say goodnight. Okay, well, I am working on chapter reviews for Economic Harmonies by Frederick Bastiat. I have submitted my first chapter review to actual anarchy as well as, and that is already posted on your site as well as Front Range Voluntarist. Plan to do two of those reviews a month. The reviews for chapter two and three on economic harmonies, as well as chapter one of Man, Economy, and State. So for the next year, that'll be roughly about 37 articles. Um, right now, there's just the first one for economic harmonies, but I do not actually at the moment have a, a website that would have these articles posted. That is not much to consider investing in, undoubtedly. Um, you can find me on the Tom Woods Show Elite. 
as far as any others being posted for these articles at the moment, that's all. That, that's only two places that are posted that. We'll look for two of those reviews at the end of every month now, so probably by the 30th. And um, it, it's a book that has been very inspiring to me enough that I have wanted to take what I've learned reading it and you know write more about it because the principles that Pascal elaborated on in the book are still very applicable today and were described very eloquently in, in a way that's easy to understand for most people. You know, it's not it doesn't sound like some esoteric, esoteric gibberish that only a dozen people in the world can understand. So I'm looking forward to writing more about it. You mentioned earlier that you're also doing uh, Man Economy and State. So if, if you have the opportunity to continue writing after you do the Economic Harmonies chapter summaries, there's a boatload of stuff you could continue working on. So uh, I would look forward to that and welcome it because you do some amazing stuff. Um, your articles so far have been some of our highest view count. So just so you know, you're, you're doing really well, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very inspired by that. So hopefully there's some real good chapter reviews coming up. Like every single chapter from the Harmonies has a silver lining of a different principle. And I, I'd love how it's coming together with rereading the book and you know writing about it this time instead of just reading it. So I think um, people are going to be interested to see what it's about because it's a very long book. Most people don't want to read a 550-page book on economics that was written 170 years ago. So these short, shorter chapter summaries, I think, are going to be a good way to just um, spread awareness of the book. Well, that sounds good. Well, hey, thank you again for being a guest on our show, the actual Anarchy Podcast, where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. If you want to support our work, patreon.com slash readrothbard, or click on any of the Amazon links, you can just click through and then search for anything your heart desires, and we will get a teeny tiny little commission, a little bump, a little bonus out of that. Uh, there's also the Tom Wesley Liberty Classroom. Scott Albright is a member of that. And you want to talk about that for just a minute? Uh, you've been enjoying that service. What do you think? Yeah, I, I really love Liberty Classroom because the videos that they have are, to, you know, taught from not just, you know, Tom Woods, but say Jeffrey Harbiner and Salerno and Tom DeLorenzo. These guys are, are top notch and as far as economic professors goes. And you definitely get a good view, a good, their historical view of economics that's really not taught much throughout the university system. So it's like um, I'm like a kid in a candy store when, you know, I get to see some of these lectures about you know, Western civilization that go pretty far back and how Adam Smith was not the founder of economic science and, you know, the differences between value and utility, it, it, it's endless. And how, um, you know, Tom's candidness, and if that's a word, and the ability to be so punchy with what he says, and he's politically incorrect in the correct way, if that makes sense. And he knows how to really get people thinking about uh, things they can't get past the emotionally driven knee-jerk reactions of, like you said, about July 4th being Secession Day. I love, you know, when Tom talks about Secession, and he talks more about it even in the um, Liberty Classroom. So I'm looking forward to get all those, you know, videos watched, and eventually I will. All right, well, thank you for that. And, uh, Robert, uh, do you have any uh, final things you want to say to our listening audience at home? Just to thank him for listening. I want to thank Scott Albert for coming on and being a great guest for us. Uh, look forward to our next episode. we got a big one planned. And I want you all to just stay hungry, my friends. Well, Robert, Dan, thanks again for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it and so glad to be a part of this. So it's been great and we'll do it again. I've got a few other movies in mind for the future. So Excellent. Yeah, we'll mark it on the list for sure. Well, hey, thank you, audience, for joining us for this episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. I think uh, I think I hear some uh, shark music in the near future as well. Do you hear that, Robert? Some dunna, 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 nana. Yeah. Are yeah. we doing a... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we got uh, Shark Week's coming up, right? Yeah, we're yeah Shark Week. Special. Shark Week. Yeah, baby. So uh, look for some Shark Week uh, and, and our regular Sunday trope of uh, whatever we happen to come up with. So we got a whole list of movies, 200 or, or so, plenty of things to talk about, plenty of stuff going on, plenty of projects, plenty of guests, plenty of amazing things. Do check us out, actuallynaked.com, readrothbar.com, and uh, all the other 
places. We uh, we appreciate you being our listeners, and uh, have a good night. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do